From the Amazon to the Himalayas, God is accomplishing his mission. Welcome to Amazon to the Himalayas podcast, stories and conversations with the global church and for the global church about the mission of God in the world. And now here is your host, Paul Aiken. Welcome to the Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. In this episode, we're going to be having a conversation with Aaron Cavan. Aaron is the pastor of Life Community Church in Quincy, Massachusetts, which is in the metro Boston area. Aaron actually planted that church back in 2008, and the Lord has really blessed his work and ministry there over the last 12 and 13 years. I've known Aaron for several years now, and I'm really excited for you to hear from him today. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Man, I'm super excited to jump on this, man. I appreciate the opportunity. Hey, why don't you start by just telling us some about you and your family? Uh, yeah, so my wife and I uh, have been married for this May will be 21 years of marriage. We have five boys. My wife's name is Courtney, and my, my oldest son's name is Brendan. He's going to be 18 next month, so he's our first one out of the nest come this fall. He's headed to Cedarville University. He wants to pursue ministry. And then we have uh, Preston, who's 15, Carson, who's 11, Keaton, who's 10, and Clayton, who's eight. So all five boys. I love it. I love hearing about a full family and a bunch of boys. Uh, I'm used to that and uh, always encouraged by that. (laughs) All right, Aaron, one of the things that I'm always interested in is is how people come to faith in Christ. And so I would love for you to share with our listeners briefly your salvation testimony. Yeah, so I grew up in a Christian home. My dad dad was a pastor. I, I joke often when I talk about this that I'm pretty sure you know, my mom gave birth to me on a pew somewhere in some Baptist church uh, in Michigan, and I've pretty much been in church my whole life. I grew up, made a profession of faith when I was 10 years old in Ocala, Florida at a revival. Uh, my dad was the pa- was pastoring there at that time. And uh, quite honestly, man, I just spent the majority of my life trying to please my parents, do the right thing, make the right choices, make them happy. And so people pleasing and approval became a big part of my life from an early age. As I got older, though, uh, you know, I shifted the focus from my parents to other people who didn't have my best interest at heart uh, and started uh, really seeking their approval. Their approval became my primary idol. And so my primary form of worship was doing whatever it took to keep these people happy or to please them or to do the things that I thought they expected of me. Uh, this led to, man, just a, a roller coaster, kind of a spiraling out of control in my life, fighting, stealing, sexual sins, substance abuse. And man, I was just drowning. And uh, and I remember getting invited to go to a Christian camp. You know, I'd gone to, grown up going to camp my whole life and wasn't really going to go my senior year before college. And uh, But my cousin was going to go. And so he invited me. And it was at that camp that I surrendered to go to Bible college. And quite honestly, it was a desperation uh, move, man. I just, I thought, man, I, I've got to get out of the vicious cycle that I'm in. Uh, so I went to, to Bible college with my cousin. And, uh, you know, only to find out that there was people just like me there. And it didn't take me long to find the same people and be doing the same exact things. Uh, but what really changed, man, is I had a few brothers on that basketball team at the college that I was at that really poured into me, loved me, served me, helped me, man. They could see I was floundering and struggling. And the beauty of that was, man, they had zero expectation. They just loved me because Christ loved them. And, uh, and man, that made a huge difference. I started wanting to emulate their lives. I started reading my Bible for the first time for myself, praying, pursuing God. I remember meeting in a prayer closet on my on my dorm floor and just really experiencing God in a powerful way, but really tripping over this thought that I grew up in a home where I knew what God's rules were. I knew what God's standards were. I knew what his expectations were, 
Um, and so I didn't have this story of, you know, I was living my life however I pleased. Then I got saved and everything changed. I got saved when I was a kid and I just essentially took that for granted. And so I didn't really see how God could still love me, use me as how his grace was efficient for me because I'd taken advantage of it for so long. And while I was reading the Bible in that prayer closet, man, I came across Romans 3.21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And for some reason that so clicked with me, I realized in that moment, I said, wait a second, there's a way that the righteousness of God can be made available to me apart from my perfect obedience to the law. And for the first time, I realized that not only did Jesus die for me, but he also lived the perfect life for me and that God accepted his righteousness on my behalf. And man, that changed everything for me. Uh, I didn't have to seek the approval of other people because my identity was anchored in Christ. And so I was no longer fighting to do what I thought people expected of me. I just wanted to live and work from my identity and no longer for my identity. Uh, and so it was a really powerful moment for me. I, I, I liken it to Jared Wilson's book, Gospel Wakefulness, where he talks about how he's talked to so many Christians over the years who were born again and then, you know, right, born again, again. You know, they had this moment where they they knew the gospel, but they never truly understood the deep kind of ramifications of the gospel till later in life. And so I look back and I remember making that profession of faith as a 10-year-old boy. But man, when I when my heart was truly captured by the gospel was at that Bible college as an 18-year-old young man. Uh, and, and quite honestly, my life's never been the same since. Wow. Praise the Lord for His grace and His work in your life. I mean, it, it's awesome that you were exposed to the gospel at, at a young age, but then at the same time that the Lord, you know, in His timing and His way, uh, really opened your eyes and hearts uh, while you were there in college. Okay, so you mentioned you were from the Midwest originally, and now you live in Boston. So tell me that story. How did you get from the Midwest to Boston to plant a church? Yeah, so I grew up in Michigan, went to college in, in Missouri. While I was at, in college and you know, God was capturing my heart, I started giving real consideration to what God had called me to do. I guess I felt like since I was a kid, that God was calling me to be uh, a missionary. Or, or I remember even going to vacation Bible school as a kid and hearing the story of uh, Adoniram Judson, and Hudson Taylor, and guys like that. And I thought, man, I, w- I want to do that with my life. So God was kind of ins- essentially rekindling some of those flames. And uh, somebody handed me a book called, at the time, this is this will date me a little bit. This is back in 1997. Somebody handed me a book called The Purpose Driven Church and uh, by Rick Warren. In the introduction to that book, he talks about why he planted Saddleback where he planted it, because he wanted to plant a church where there needed to be more churches, where there wasn't a lot of churches or where there was a need. And so what was really interesting about that, Paul, was that that was the first time in my life that I'd ever thought about the fact that church planting and strategy could go hand in hand. I just never even gave a thought to why someone would plant a church somewhere specific until I read that book. And I thought, well, man, that makes sense. I don't want to plant a church where there's 20 other churches. I want to plant a church where there are no churches. And so as I began praying through that, I, I mean, I didn't have, this was, you know, pre-Google days and everything else. So I didn't exactly know how I would even find that information. I think at one point, man, I was trying to convince the guys in my dorm floor to go start a church with me in New Orleans. Cause I, in my mind, that was the most simple place I could think of. And so, you know, just started this journey of discovery. What's really cool is how God providentially worked it out. I ended up, uh, my wife and I, I met her at college. We got married and uh, she is the daughter of a church planter in New England. And uh, he planted a church in Salem, New Hampshire. Her dad did back in the seventies. And this was my first introduction to really the need in New England. You know, I'd never even given really any consideration to that. Probably if you'd asked me before I met them, I would assume, you know, there was a, a this is, this is where Christianity started, essentially, right, in, in North America. This is like kind of where the Reformation or the, uh, uh, you know, the revivals happen and movement happened throughout our country. And so 
you know, in my mind, I just didn't think about the great need. And, and what I hadn't realized is how post-Christian New England had become. And so we really began praying through that. And I knew God wanted me to plant a church. Now it kind of had a region uh, where I said, okay, well, if this is the least churched area in the, in the country, let me start narrowing in. And to be honest with you, man, I, I just, I grew up in Detroit. I've always been an urban guy, not a rural guy. I was a youth pastor in Ohio in a rural town for seven years. And, and by the end of that tenure there, man, I was desperate to get back into the city, uh, into an urban context. And so we kind of narrowed in on Boston because we realized this is the most urban epicenter. This is where all the people are at. Within the 495 belt loop, there's 4.5 million people in the greater Boston area. And, and at the time, those statistics were that less than 1% of those who, who live in that, uh, that geographical location actually know Christ or evangelical Christians. And so we started exploring that. And then the more we explored the map, we fell in love with, with Quincy, which is just south of the city. As soon as you leave South Boston and Dorchester, you, you get into the city of Quincy. It's the fourth largest city in the Boston metro area. And so, man, we, we just fell in love with it. And uh, we moved here. And, and uh, what's pretty interesting, man, is that my dilemma in thinking about moving here was, you know, I felt really unqualified. You know, I, I truthfully, I didn't, I didn't finish Bible college. I got married and took a youth pastor position. I didn't feel I was, you know, I was moving to, you know, what we look at as kind of the most educated, you know, focus of our country in, in this little Northeast corner up here. And uh, man, I, and I thought, man, what about my kids? What if they're, what if I start this church? And, you know, at the time, my wife and I had a four-year-old and a two-year-old thought, man, what if we get up here and it's a failure and then my kids don't want to follow Jesus. I kind of had all these fears uh, going into it. And, uh, and God brought me to Romans 15, 20, where Paul says, man, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. And, and man, God pricked my heart about that. And I realized I was asking the wrong question. As I ended my tenure as a youth pastor, I was thinking, you know, where do you want me to go, God? Do you want me to travel and speak to students? That's what I was doing at the time. Do you want me to take a position on, on staff somewhere at a larger church? Or, you know, you want me to plant this church in Boston? And what I realized is the question wasn't, where do you want me to go, God? The question should have been, where do I need to go in order to trust you the most? And so uh, that question began to consume, consume us. And it was very clear to us that if the move to Boston was, that was the most strategic thing we could do that would put ourselves in a position where God had to show up. And so that's how we, we ended up here. Okay. So you, you get to Boston and then around 2008 or so, you end up planting Life Community Church there in Quincy. Uh, I want you to tell us some about the early days of the church. Uh, you know, when people think about church planting in a place like Boston, I'm sure it sounds like an adventure. And I'm sure there are many elements that are kind of adventurous and exciting. But I also know there's there's other realities as well. So tell us some about the the good, the bad, and the ugly of those early days planting the church there in Boston. Yeah, uh, that's probably the best way to describe it. Good, bad, and ugly uh, all at the same time. You know, when we when we moved here, I, I didn't, we didn't know anybody in our city. And I was traveling at the time, still trying to raise support. And so, you know, I basically dropped my wife and our kids off. We got connected to a local church here in the area that wasn't in our city. It was a couple towns uh, removed. And then I just started traveling. I was gone probably 35 weekends out of that first year traveling and trying to raise funds uh, for this church plant. As I mentioned before, I was, I was traveling and speaking at a lot of youth events. So I would have youth pastors reach out to me and I would basically leverage that and say, hey, I will come speak to your students, but you got to get me, you got to get me on your stage on Sunday morning to try and raise some funds for this church plant. Uh, and so that first year was a little tough just because, you know, you know, my wife 
was, was living here. Uh, we were living here, you know, we had the four-year-old and the two-year-old and, and I was just gone most weekends. And, uh, and then, you know, we started to invite more people into our apartment. And so, you know, as we started to kind of pass that first year, we moved here in 2007, 2008, we, we kind of started meeting as Life Community Church. And so we started inviting some neighbors and some other friends that we'd met to the church we were at. So there's about, about 10 or 12 of us that started meeting as a Bible study in my living room. And, uh, you know, at some point we decided, hey, let's just pull the trigger. We're going to start meeting at a hotel. We did that for a little bit just to kind of adjust from being a Bible study in a living room to more kind of what we wanted to experience as a worship gathering. Man, we, we tried everything we knew how to do. You know, we read books, you know, back in the day, it wasn't a ton of books as much as there is now, but reading books like Aubrey Malfrey's Planting Churches in the 21st Century, Ralph Moore's book on church planting. And so I did everything those books told me to do, man. I've I, I got my mission, my vision, my values set up. We were flyering. We did uh, texting surveys at the, the, the subway. Uh, we call it the T, but, you know, we did everything we knew how to do, man. And, and came to launch Sunday. We wanted to launch large. We wanted to do the best we could. And, you know, September 21st, 2008, we launched in an elementary school cafeteria and 30 people show up. And quite honestly, 15 of those people were there on a missions trip from Florida. And so they weren't even going to be back the next Sunday. And so that just started like a, about a two to three year run that just was a revolving door of a different 30 or 50 people. We'd have people come in and say, oh, you, that's great. You guys, you guys have something for kids because we were so young. I was only 29 at the time and I was the oldest person in the church. And so even the person leading worship was 16 years old. But but we would tell them, we're not, this isn't just for kids. It's just the people that are actually coming right now. Uh, and man, it just took a long time. And I think where it, where it got really difficult, honestly, was, you know, we, we were in an apartment for two years. We bought a house at the bottom of the market in 2009 and got a great deal on it. But it was, it was a dump and we were going to have to completely gut it. At the, my wife had just gotten pregnant with our third. Uh, and so by the time we move into this house, it was, we had a, a newborn baby. And, and my wife and I and our three boys, we had gutted the entire house. We were living in one of the bedrooms. There was no heat in the house. So we had a, one electric heater in there. We were taking showers at the Y. It was a tough time, man. And there was a lot of times in that moment where I thought, God, what have I done? I'm, I'm like the worst husband, the worst father ever. I don't know that I've made the right choice. I don't see a way forward. And every time that would happen, though, Paul, I think the most important part is it was in those dark days that God would always provide another opportunity. And so one of the couples that was in our church at the time, uh, Skip and Stacy Stefano, Skip owned his own lobster business. And so he saw we were kind of struggling and he offered me an opportunity to work on his lobster boat. So for a couple of seasons, that's what I did. I worked on his lobster boat. We kept planting the church. And God used that to provide providentially, man. I would remember, I remember getting up early in the morning, four o'clock. He'd pick me up. We'd go lobster all day. You know, I'd get back around two or three in the afternoon, go to the office, get my sermon ready and do the work I need to do for the church plant. Try to come home, spend some time with the family, go to bed, wake up the next morning, you know, and, and do the same thing. And yet in the midst of all that, God just kept providing and kept providing and kept providing. And I really think, man, I think, Unfortunately, a lot of guys that get into those first two or three years, they fizzle out. And, and it's unfortunate because on the other side of that is, is the good stuff. You know, it's, it's in the midst of that that God's refining you and providing for you and sharpening you and chiseling you. 
And, and it's in that moment that he's preparing you for what he has next. And after that three-year mark, man, that's when things really started to change for us. Uh, we had become a part of our community, a part of our city. People recognize us now. We were serving, loving. We started to have a few people from our city that had come to faith in Jesus. And, and now God just began to build from that kind of you know, rough two or three years. And he took kind of what was in that rubble and made something really beautiful out of that. Amen, man. Thanks for sharing that. I'm sure there's there's also there's joy, and then there's also probably even some fatigue as you kind of think back to some of those seasons and some of those times. Just be able to see the Lord's hand at work. So I appreciate you sharing that. I, I want to hear now about kind of you know life, community, church. Twelve years later, thirteen years later. You know, now we're in 2021. I'd love for you to share with us. You know, what's the church like? What's the the makeup of the church, the congregation? What is the the reputation that the church has in the community? Yeah. So, man, it's interesting, man. We I just talked about this on Sunday morning. I have a completely different viewpoint now. You know, almost thirteen years in, I get to look back over the last thirteen years, and it, it only makes me more excited for the future. We did start to grow, as I said. After that third year, uh, we started to grow. We had some key people step up. Uh, a great friend of mine who was leading worship at the time with his band, uh, their band had decided, hey, we're starting families, time to call it quits. And, and rather than him take the easy way out and become a worship pastor at a, at a larger church in Texas, which is where he's from, he called me up and said, man, I know you can't pay me anything, but I'd love to come and lead worship and be a part of what's, what you're doing. And uh, man, he moved up here and man, then our worship services started to just, it just took like a whole nother level, uh, man. And so it was just organized and it was good and it was powerful and more and more people were coming and we added more services. And then we moved from the elementary school to the middle school, but something happened in our heart, man. We started to watch this thing really start to grow and we were very kind of attractional in nature. And man, we, we asked ourselves this question. It was probably the most disturbing question we could ask ourselves at the time. This was uh, seven years ago. So this would have been five years into our plant. Things are growing. We're a couple hundred people at that time. We have no reason to believe it's going to slow down. And we asked ourselves this question. We said, man, if we keep doing this, we could grow to be a thousand people in no time. But could we be okay with the fact that we could be a church of a thousand people, but those people don't have to know their neighbor? And that struck us to our core, man. Like at the end of the day, we're not called here to plant worship gatherings. We're called here to make disciples. And you can unfortunately do a really good job of growing a congregation and not make disciples. You could plant a church and not make disciples, but you can't make disciples and not plant a church. And so I think at the end of the day, we realize as God started to change our heart and uh, we came across the book, Total Church, Steve Timmis, Tim Chester. And they talked about when a church starts to grow, you've got to make a decision of where you're going to spend your time, energy, and creativity. Are you going to, are you going to put it all into doing whatever it takes to get this congregation larger? Or are you going to be more intentional about starting multiple smaller congregations? And man, that really resonated with us. And so what, what happened was we completely shifted our focus. Uh, we started creating environments where people were growing to be on mission. Um, and so we were learning a lot about, you know, at the time was, was really kind of budding and emerging was the missional community movement. And, you know, we started learning about that, look, what that looked like in our context and, and, and kind of piecing that together. And, and over time, we started putting people in places where they were learning to live on mission as a part of their spiritual formation we realized that we weren't going to be able to make disciples unless we were putting them in a position where they had to make other disciples. And the more that was happening through starting missional communities in our city and then in other towns, we realized, hey, God's kind of give us a new strategy here. If we're going to put a couple of missional communities in the next town over, 
at some point in order to sustain that mission, we need to plant another church there so that it can sustain the mission that's already existing. Rather than parachute someone in and start mission, we need to start churches because mission already exists there. And so we, we did. So it, back uh, three years ago, we started our, our second parish, uh, which is in Braintree, the next town over. So we literally started another church 10 minutes away from us. And so we'd already had a couple of missional communities there. We raised up a leader. We sent 50 people with them and they started that parish. And now uh, next Easter, we're going to start a third parish in Weymouth. And so this has become like what we've realized is when we put people in positions where they're making disciples and make disciples and make disciples, the natural byproduct of that is multiplication. And so what that's done over time is our congregation now is full of people whose lives have been transformed by the gospel through uh, through Life Community Church. Uh, man, I look at our congregation on a regular basis, and I'm, I recall 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul talks about, you know, gives this list of like, you know, here's all, all these things, these behaviors, these actions, these ways of life, and none of these ways of life are, you know, expedient for the gospel. None of, like, no one who practices such things, he even says, will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says this, after that, he says, as in such as some of you were, And so what I look at our congregation now is we're a church that's full of broken, jacked up, messed up people, but we're also a church full of people who used to be broken, jacked up, messed up people. And now their lives have been transformed by the gospel. And so now what we've done is created this this environment, this culture where we're starting to farm up more and more missional engaging leaders, which are going to be leading to more and more church planters and disciple makers and, and missional multipliers. And we can start to spread that out from town to town, community to community. And uh, we're really beginning to see this dream, this vision that God's given us really begin to uh, come to fruition. Man, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for his faithfulness. You know, I know, like you said, it hasn't hasn't been an easy road, but the Lord has been good each step of the way and has given wisdom and has helped guide you to, to where he has you today. And it's encouraging to hear about these new congregations, these new church plants, in a sense, that are popping up in the in the surrounding communities. I want to ask a, a different question. You were just talking about a lot of the encouraging things, but I also know there are challenges to the work that you're doing as well. And so as you think about your church, your work in Boston, what would you say is the greatest challenge to doing faithful ministry in the city of Boston? I know there's all kinds of things you could probably respond with here, but really try to narrow down to maybe one or two things. What would you say you would label as the greatest challenge to doing faithful ministry in the city of Boston? Yeah. I mean, to your point, there's there's a lot of things I could say, obviously, like competing worldviews, uh, people maybe who are hostile to the gospel. You know, resources is a big one that comes up often. You know, it's interesting. I, I wrote an article a few years back and in, in highlighting this exact thing, like what are some of the, the challenges with urban ministry? And what's really awesome is that oftentimes what we see as challenges are often our greatest opportunity. You know, so I would say, you know, what's really cool is Alvin Reed talks about in his book, Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out, that we don't, America is is not Jerusalem in Acts 2. It's more like Athens in Acts 17. And so uh, as a result of that, we engage it differently. And so as we move into kind of the, the hubs of our, of our world, these major cities, these metropolitan areas, and in particular Boston, you know, a lot of times what becomes the most challenging thing are things like busy pace of life diverse people groups and kind of the challenges that come with that. And then also, you know, crisis of human need. But on the flip side of that, if you take, for instance, a busy pace of life, what's really cool about that is, yes, things are busy. And what that means is you can't do what you would traditionally do. I grew up in church going Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, prayer meeting, Friday night visitation, Sunday school, the next, like 
on and on, right? And, and so what we realized is there's not space for that. But what's awesome about it is it creates the perfect opportunity for people to realize as new disciples who are making more disciples that ministry is an all of life thing. And so they just take discipleship and ministry into all the spaces and places they're at. They realize that you know, their soccer coach or they're involved in everything that they're involved in, whether that's work or whether that's extracurricular or whether that's stuff with their kids, all those things are opportunities for ministry. They're not distractions. Uh, you think about diverse people groups, man, that's what's so beautiful about living in a place like Boston or some of the world's largest cities and metropolitan areas is that these, you know, diverse groups of people in these city contexts are the perfect context for us to be able to show a divided world, what it looks like to be reconciled to God with others. When you start to see churches that emerge that have as their center focus, Jesus Christ, that's what we have in common. And now we get to kind of learn from each other and, and, and benefit from one another and, uh, and grow in that. I think another thing is like crisis of human need. You know, when you move to the city like this, there's just so much brokenness. There's poverty. There's people who don't have food. There's, there's, they don't have access to things. There's addiction. There's, there's just so much brokenness. And yet again, even that challenge, which is all of these are real challenges. These are things that we have to navigate, but they're also our greatest opportunity in the sense that the gospel shines brightest in the darkest places. And so, you know, I would say, I would say like for me, uh, the time that I've been here, uh, I think all of these things I've mentioned are things that I, when I first got here, saw as a real, you know, potential roadblock to being able to do ministry. But what I've realized over time is the longer you're in that space, the longer you're engaging, even the most challenging things become the best opportunities for the gospel. Amen. That's, that's, I think that's good and helpful perspective. You know, you're in Quincy, you're, you're in Metro Boston, you love Boston, you want to see more disciples, more churches planted there. Uh, there's a great need for more disciples and more churches to be planted there. So you're there in Quincy, Boston. I'm here in Louisville at, at Southern Seminary. So I want to ask, what would you say to a seminary student, maybe a seminary student who's preparing to graduate in three or four months or preparing to graduate in the next nine or 12 months? And for them, they're getting ready to graduate. All the options are on the table. They feel feel called to some sort of full-time vocational ministry, but really they don't know what that's going to look like. I want to ask you the question, why should they consider Boston? Why should they consider working with North American Mission Board? Man, I, I would say, I mean, I'm going to say Boston because I think it's the greatest city on the planet. But I, I think more importantly for these guys coming out of seminary, you know, I think for a lot, a lot of guys, there's a lot of options on the table. And so I think they're going to find themselves in a situation much like I was, uh, you know, 13, 14 years ago, which is asking the question, where do you want me to go, God? And my challenge to you, if you're listening to this podcast is don't ask the question, where does God want you to go? Ask the question, where do you need to go that's going to force you to trust him the most? And man, if it, I think all of us as followers of Jesus want to experience a movement of God. We want to see God move. And what I'm telling you is that a movement of God is not some stated idea. It's not a hypothetical. We are experiencing a movement of God in Boston. We have grown over the last 10 years from a group of five to seven church planters to 83 church plants. And if you hear that and think, oh, well, then Boston saturated 83 church plants for 4.5 million people is just scratching the surface. And so our goal, our vision is to start 300 churches by 2030. And so we need an army of church planters. And so many of you who are seminary grads, you, you have such a great education, such a great theological context Man, you have such a sharp 
mind and a perspective. And, and God is going to use that in incredible ways. And I'm going to ask you to, to leverage that gift to plant churches in an area like Boston and give your life to something that's going to require you to be put in a position where God has to show up. It could only be accomplished by the supernatural work of the spirit in your life and by God's providence and his power in your life. That's a good word. You know, you were, I I guess in many ways, still are a a church planter. You work with other church planters. So in your opinion, I'd love to hear you share what ingredients, what qualities, what characteristics make for a good and effective church planter? Yeah, man, this is almost like the, the, the greatest challenging question, right? In the sense that there's probably a lot of things I could list. I think the things I look for, the things I, I, that I've learned over the years now that I've seen are kind of the, the, some, some kind of uh, consistent commonalities in church planners that God has used powerfully is, I think one, and, and this is even a good word for those maybe who are listening from the seminary, man, don't waste those seminary years not getting ministry experience. I think I've met a lot of guys who have moved here who have, man, they have great theology. They love the Lord. They have even a compelling vision. They, they have a lot of those things, but man, they just lack day in and day out ministry experience, loving people, serving people. And I know that, you know, a place like Louisville or wherever you may find yourself, whoever's listening to this, you know, you sometimes we look at that and think, well, it's not in the same context, but man, I would say, I don't know, I'm, this is just a guess, but I would say probably 70% of ministry is universal across any context right? Just loving people, serving them, visiting them. Man, I, I was, I, I worked as a youth pastor in an old school church, man. I showed up and I was driving kids to camp and cleaning bathrooms and going on visitation and doing hospital visits and doing communion and preaching funerals. And, and man, I, I can't reiterate enough. We're seeing now a lot of guys who are coming and they're moving and they're, they're putting themselves out there, which is fantastic. But now they're having to kind of, there's a, there's a big curve where they're having to learn a lot of that ministry experience here when, when they really could have been learning that years prior to coming. And so I would say ministry experience. I would say second thing we look for is uh, a demonstration of apostolic gifting. You know, I, I can't reiterate this enough as well, man. I, I think there's a lot of gifted leaders, but man, I would really, really look at that apest kind of like continuum. And, and what we're looking for is guys that demonstrate an apostolic gifting, that kind of entrepreneurial uh, pioneering spirit, want to take mission to a new forefront. Those are the guys that are that are our best positioned to be the lead role in, in a church plant. Now, I want to say too, briefly, just because you're not the lead guy doesn't mean you don't have an important role to play in church planting. But as, as lead guys, church planters, guys that are gonna that are gonna lead the way on this, uh, that apostolic gifting is is important. And and then finally, I would say people that are willing to show up. I, I know that sounds crazy, man. But like, show up every time. If your neighbor invites you to a cookout, go to the cookout. If you have an opportunity to serve on the PTO at your school, serve on the PTO. If you have an opportunity to join a community council, join a community council. Go to the events, go to the parades, clean up trash, volunteer. I've seen over the last decade, the amount of, I can't even tell you how much fruit God has brought from 10 years, honestly, Paul, of just showing up. Real quick, briefly, I have... A friend of mine, Jim McCarthy, a neighbor, I've served on the community council with him for 11 years now, almost 11 years in my in my neighborhood. And I invited him to church. I've invited him to come. I've invited him to be a part of what we were doing. And uh, he never did. 
for almost 10 years that, that went on eight, eight years that I knew him actually, that that was going on. And when we got to our 10 year anniversary, uh, but, but meanwhile, every time he invited me, I would show up, I'd help serve, I'd help set up, t- I'd, I'd stay late after, you know, everybody had left to volunteer and help him clean everything up. And I just, every time he asked me, I just, I made myself available. And at our 10 year anniversary, I invited him to church. I said, Hey man, we have a 10 year anniversary. I would just love for you to come and celebrate with us. And you know what he asked himself? He said, you know what? This guy has shown up to everything I've ever asked him to. And I haven't gone to his church. The least I could do is go check out his church because he's my friend. And it was at that service he heard for the very first time that he could have that he was so disenchanted with the church. He was so jaded by that. But it was at that service that he realized I could have a relationship with Jesus that's not that that's outside of that. Like I can just have Jesus. And that's begun this incredible conversation. He's now come to faith in Jesus. He's a follower. He's inviting people to come along with him. Uh, It's a powerful example. So that would be my thing, dude. Experience in ministry, dude. Don't waste the time you have prior to launch or to planting. Demonstrate an apostolic gifting and you got to show up every time. Amen. Amen. Those are all really helpful things and and hopefully encouraging things for folks who are listening in. I want to ask you two kind of rapid fire questions, you know, maybe a little bit more broadly, just get outside of Boston, maybe a little bit more to the North American context. Uh, and, And it's kind of the same question, just two flip sides. So as you think about church planting in North America today, what encourages you? And then on the flip side, as you think about church planting in North America today, what discourages you or concerns you? Uh, yeah. So I would say, honestly, I just have two quick answers for this. The first one is, you know, the values of the sin network are brotherhood, multiplication and restoration. If there's one thing I'm encouraged by uh, in North American church planning right now is that we're actually seeing that it's not a statement on the wall. It's, it's a reality in the lives of so many church planning movements. And I don't think that's exclusive to sin network. I, I think that's happening. I just, I happen to love those values. We're seeing families of people that are planting churches together, that are diminishing and kind of breaking down any walls of competition and, and serving together and are multiplying together, sharing resources together, and are seeking the restoration and well-being of their city. That is happening everywhere across North America right now. Uh, and we want it to happen more. We want to plant more churches. We're just getting started. Uh, but that's what I'm most encouraged by. I think what I'm most concerned by, I don't know that I would use the word discouraged, I think concerned is that, and I don't, I guess the way I would put it is I'm concerned that there are too many guys that love their dream of church planting more than they love God's dream for their city. They love their their dream of church planting more than they love God's dream for their city. And so there there is a bit of, I, I don't know if hype's the right word, but you know, church planting right now is a very attractive option for a lot of people. And there's these kind of ideas and we read books and we watch, you know, videos, we go to conferences, we talk to church planters and we start developing this dream of what our church plant is going to be. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is that becomes the tail that wags the dog. And so we move to a city, plant a church, and uh, we, we end up loving our dream of what this church could be more than being nimble enough to respond to the spirit and loving what God actually wants to do in that city and how he wants to use us. So I think there's a, there's a reason for pause there and caution, you know, that guys aren't falling in love with church planting, but they're falling in love with Jesus and, and want to see, you know, Jesus radically change and transform a city. Amen. That's a, that's a good word about keeping, keeping Jesus as the center and as the focus, keeping our eyes fixed 
on him. The next question I want to ask is a little bit more personal in in nature, but just curious after you've been, you know, living and serving and laboring there in in Boston now for 13 years and the question is this, you know, Aaron, day after day, week after week and month after month, what keeps you doing what you're doing and why are you giving your life to this work? Hmm. I would say two things and then I'll give an explanation. My love for God and Derek Mozick. So let me I'll, I'll Clarify what I mean. I think at the end of the day, it will only be your love for God that will sustain you in the long, hard years of church planting and of ministry life. I think we're seeing that more public, you know, obviously things are more public than they've ever been. And so now we're seeing so much more of that happening before our very eyes, guys that are leading large, even large scale ministries, and yet their character is corrupt. Tim Keller talks about that. I remember hearing him say one time that high spiritual giftedness does not equal high spiritual character. You know, at the end of the day, uh, I have a, a great mentor who, who, when we meet, he coaches me often. And he always, and I'll, I'll start spitting off all the things I'm doing in ministry and how excited I am about all those things. And, and he'll stop me in the middle of that. And he'll say, I, I hear you talking a lot about the work. Let's take some time. Now tell me about your walk. And he really challenges me not to confuse the walk with the work. And so, man, I would just, I would say, first of all, what sustains me, if, as I go back over the last 20 years of ministry, specifically now, almost 13 planting churches in Boston, and I look back at those moments in my darkest moments, it wasn't ministry that pulled me out of those pits. It wasn't, you know, more work or more clever ideas or strategies that pulled me out of those pits. It was returning to God's word like that college kid at 18 years of age in Springfield, Missouri, who ran into that prayer closet because he wanted to know God more. And so that's been the sustaining thing in my life. And I would say along the lines of that, though, is what's encouraging is guys like Derek Mosick. Derek Mosick is a guy at Life Community Church. We have a huge recovery population in our church family. We are literally seeing the chains of addiction broken in people's lives lives transformed. Derek Mozick grew up uh, in Medford, Massachusetts, dropped out of high school, got dropped out of middle school in eighth grade as an eighth grade education, in and out of prison, uh, running the streets, drug addict until he was 30 years old. So just going hard for 15 to 17 years, uh, the opposite direction of God. Goes to a sober house and that sober house at the time they were bringing van loads of people to our church. And he came, they just took it upon themselves to do that. They realized they saw addiction, a major part of addiction is that it's a spiritual malady and they wanted to address it from a spiritual means. And so they brought this van load and Derek came, was captivated by the music, had people in his life. He comes to faith in Jesus. And over the last four or five years now, I've had the opportunity to do Derek's wedding, he now has a family. He leads our addiction ministry. He just accomplished the pastoral track that we've used to train indigenous dudes from within our church in preparation for planting more churches, surrendered to church planting. And actually our next parish that's happening, the next town over, he literally moved out of his apartment with his wife. They bought a house in Weymouth just to be a part of that church plant. And in the next two years, Derek will likely be our next church planter out and will be the first church planter that we're launching that got saved at life, discipled, and being sent out and multiplied. So, man, I look at that and I go, it's just a reminder to me that the promises that God gives us in his word, that the gospel is true. It really is the power of God and the salvation. And when I see those examples, 
and I pair that with my walk with the Lord, I can't stop doing what God's called me to do. Amen, brother. Well said, and and praise the Lord for his his saving work in the lives mm. of people, and yeah, not just saving people, but then giving them a meaning and a purpose and using them uh, to accomplish his mission and his purpose there in the city of Boston. Super encouraging. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. All right, Aaron, I appreciate your time. One last question for you before I let you go, and here's the question. What is one thing you want everyone listening to this podcast to know or to do? If I could say one thing to you, I would say don't don't waste your life. Piper's book has been very instrumental in my life in terms of that th- that line of thinking, uh, and I recall that often. I share that often. I teach that to my own kids. I teach that to my own church. We have such a short period of time on this earth, and God's placed us here. Acts seventeen twenty six tells us that He's determined the allotted periods and boundaries of our dwelling place. He put us here now for this exact reason. Every single one of us have an important role to play in God's movement. And the truth is, we know, we know that God doesn't need us to do anything. But how amazing is it that God sovereignly includes us in his work and his mission in this world? And so he has sovereignly determined that we would play a part in the culmination of his kingdom. And if that's something God's invited us into, that's something that we should want to be a part of. Um, So I would encourage, man, don't waste your life. You're a missionary. God wants to use you in all the spaces and places that he's put you so that you might be used in a powerful way to advance the kingdom and push back generational lostness wherever it is that God's called you to go. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Aaron today. Uh, please pray for him, for his family, and the work of Life Community Church there in Boston. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast and be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to Amazon to the Himalayas. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.